celebration. <laughs> I'm Dana. I'm Kristen. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the darker side of life. Kristen's going to tell me a story that I've been trying to get out of her all week. One of these days, because we don't tell each other what stories we're going to do. And I'm always texting her because she's texting me. <laughs> and she says, I just have to finish this book and I'm going to work on my story tonight. And I'll say, well, what's your story about? And she's like, I'm not telling you. One of these days I will break you. Nope. And I will get you to slip up and tell me your story topic. One day I'm going to quote slip up. So you're going to think you know my story and then I'm going to turn around oh, and tell you up. something different. Do you have okay, any guesses? That's... Oh, what's the general topic of it? I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to Is tell it haunting? You it is. is it true crime? Is it I, it could be it? considered I would consider it kind of a true crime. Very legally like there's a lot of legal stuff. I like legal stuff. So do you want to know what it is? Yes. The Salem Witch Trials. <gasps> Sweet. <laughs> nice. I decided to finally do it. So, um, and then I regretted it. I regretted it as soon as <laughs> I started. <laughs> because there was so much information to eat through, I bet. And I mean, I learned about the Witch Trials. I was 10. I was in fourth grade. And so like, it's been an interest of mine forever. So like, I already know a lot about it. But then when you start reading books about it and actually like really researching it, it's a lot of information. And when I started doing it a week ago, realizing we have, I have a week to get this together and I realized, oh, "Oh, I don't want to do this, but (laughs) I have to because I don't have another story. So why did I do this? Why did I do this? (laughs) <laughs> it was one I was going to do eventually one day. Right. And so I was trying to figure out a good October story. And I, this isn't October. Obviously, it doesn't take place in October. I think a lot of people probably think it do. It does. But it do. It do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it has like a very October vibe to it because it you know, deals with the supernatural and the devil and witches. And even though it really and doesn't plus, I feel deal like with Salem is like the world capital of Halloween or right. the United States capital of Halloween right. anyway. So that is very much a place that you think of in October. When you think of just like New England in general, I always think of October. It's always Me like too. October Me too. weather, October. Fall. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, October seems like a good time to do it. Plus it's one of my favorite time periods in history to learn about. And yeah. October is my favorite month. So yep. We're done with the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. You don't know how many times I typed 1962 as I was <laughs> writing this up. I'm like, nope, not the time. A lot of stuff happened in 62, and I'm sure that wasn't one of them. Yes. So, my sources, I'm naming right off the bat because there's a ton of them. No, oh, gee. And okay, I bet. It's going to be hard to like cite like cite it throughout the document or out throughout the podcast, because sometimes I'll use multiple sources in like one paragraph of what I've written up. So I used Wikipedia a lot just to get the timeline down because they do a really good job of like just getting a basic timeline down. I have a book it's called, so this is going to sound really funny. It's called the penguin book of witches. (laughs) So like the penguin classics, like the, Oh, those books. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. I'm familiar with them. Which again, like gives like good, just like concise information. And this is actually on all like witch, like the witch trials going back 
to the very beginning, I think starting in like 1500s or something. So, but they have a good section on Salem. Um, I use that. I used a book called The Witches by Stacey Schiff, um, which is amazing. I've had it for two years and still haven't got through it yet because it's so detailed. I'm still not through it and had to stop reading <laughs> because I just kept finding stuff I wanted to add to my story. <laughs> um, she also wrote an article for The New Yorker called Inside the Salem, the Salem Witch Trials. I used... I use history.com, smithsoniamag.com, britannica.com, historyofmassachusetts.org, um, articles about forensic psychiatry in the Salem Witch oh Trials. Oh my God, how deep dive are you? Um, from the Throwing. American Academy of Psychiatry and Law. I listened to a podcast called In Our Time History with Melvin Braggs, Susan Castillo Street, Simon Middleton, and Marion Gibson. BuzzFeed Unsolved, and a YouTube video called Salem Witch Trials Explained by Hip Hughes. So, so basically all the sources. Everything. Everything. You could just say all the sources. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. I went deep. And I thought mine was, <laughs> I thought my next story was that I'm working on was going to be a little I mean, complicated, but. When I'm, when Damn. I'm coming home from work and then I'm sitting on my couch with a pen and a highlighter, highlighter reading an article <laughs> called Salem Witchcraft and Lessons for Contemporary Forensic Psychiatry. I've hit a whole new level. Yes. yes. <laughs> I can't imagine how deep these articles go or how deep your story is about to go. Yeah, they're so fascinating. Here's a note that says WTF. <laughs> so, all right, I guess I should get into telling the story. All right, so Salem. It, everyone pretty much knows about the Salem Witch Trials, even if you don't know a lot of details. Obviously, you know that happened. Um, the term witch hunt, we see thrown around still to this day, very often and usually on a daily basis these days. Oh, my so, God. Don't get me started. Um, <laughs> so from about January to September, the Salem Witch Trials took up uh, most of the year of 1692 officially ending in 1693, the early part of 1693. Okay. First off, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I did not know that it lasted in like kind of a short period of time. I thought it was maybe five or six years. No, like, it wasn't long at all. My mental impression was mm -hmm. always like, this was kind of an ongoing thing. Because it so. seems so ongoing because it's such a big event that no, it was only, you know, it was only pretty much a year. It was just. Yeah. That surprises me right off the bat. And I'll have. Some, we'll kind of talk at the end. We can kind of talk through some theories about it, or I have a lot of thoughts okay. on it. So, okay, good. Um, when it was over, 20 people had been executed, more than 200 people had been accused, several died in jail. It wouldn't be until 2001, which would have been 309 years later, that everyone was proclaimed innocent. Like, oh my god, yes, it took. <laughs> Over 300 years. Oh my years. God. Yes. That was the year after I graduated high school. So the year after you graduated high school, everyone in the Salem Witch Trials was proclaimed innocent. Like Holy let that shit. sink in how long that took. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. I watched this really good YouTube video that I mentioned before called Salem Witch Trials Explained by Hip Hughes. I would recommend, it gives, again, a lot of these just give very basic information, but it kind of helps to get a basis of everything. So you know, witch trials really weren't uncommon for the people living in Salem because they had come over from England. And in Europe, between about the 15th and 18th centuries, over 40,000 people had been killed 
for being witches. They had been executed. Oh my God. Yeah. So, you know, you've got 20 people in Salem, which seems, that seems like just a drop in the bucket. But Salem was important because it was the first, it was the first big trial of like colonial United States, like the early United States colonial settlements. So New England obviously was settled by religious refugees. And I'm going to give just a little bit of background to understand the people of Salem and kind of where they came from. Uh, They had fled England because they didn't agree with the Church of England. And they wanted to be able to practice their faith more freely and build a strictly Bible-based society. So that's where you see the Puritans coming in with that very like hardline strict way of looking at life and living taking the Bible literally and living strictly by the Bible. So they ended up settling in the Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth colonies, and they believed heavily in the supernatural, both um, both God and the devil. So, and I think that's really important to remember as you read and learn about the witch trials. I had a hard time not thinking of it in terms of my brain living in 2019 and being from a totally different time having to think about like how they would be experiencing all of this in 1692. So like totally different life. So I think that's important to remember because we talk about God and the devil today. Like people believe in God, they believe in the devil, but Puritans really believed in both. Like it was very black and white. God exists. The devil exists. Like just as sure as I have 10 fingers and 10 toes and a nose on my face, the devil exists and God is out there as well. So they also believed in witches that would be asked to do the devil's bidding by like signing his book. So when things went wrong, it was because God was angry. They had angered God in some way. And the devil was always there. He was always kind of lurking about trying to turn them over to his side. That was just normal. If you had a cow that died, it was like, that could be blamed on the devil or a witch, or you had sinned in some way. And that was just completely normal for them so there's probably no way for them to figure out which one it is like if your cows die is god mad at me or is it the devil doing something on his own right like how do you know which one (laughs) all you know is that like god's probably mad and the devil is near like you've done something that goes against god and that could be the devil like the devil's influence I could see how that, and just like you said, it is kind of hard for us to think about Mm -hmm. it in our 2019 mindset, but I could see how somebody might think that. Yeah. Like I could see how they might, and you're in a new country, completely new place. It's totally different than your whole, what your whole life has been so far. Right. I mean, I could see how it's bad no matter what, either God's angry or the devil's here and both of those situations are not good. Exactly. It's scary. And that's something that I was actually just about to touch on because there was a lot of anxiety, like a lot to give these people anxiety. Like you said, they're in this new place, this new frontier, basically, that's wild, that's unsettled. And there's a lot unknown. There's a lot to give them anxiety. Fear of the unknown is strong. Right. It, you know, it's a struggle. It's it's not easy. They're not coming into this ready-made world. They're coming from England over to this completely, well, I'm not going to say completely unsettled place. Obviously, there were people living on this continent. Unsettled by Europeans. Right. (laughs) But that had been part of the, you know, part of what had been giving them this anxiety. There were also wars that were going on. There had been King's 
King Philip's War from 1675 to 1678 between settlers and the Wampanoag Native Americans, I want to say. Um, so there had been that war that had happened 13 years after that. There was King William's War between the colonists in present-day Maine and the Wabanaki Native Americans who were supported by the French. So this lasted from 1688 to 1697. So this was still happening as the trials were Damn. going on. And so as those wars were going on, settlements along present-day Maine and like the present-day Maine coast, they were being attacked by indigenous people. And a lot of these settlements um, had to be abandoned. You had a lot of refugees that were coming down the Essex County, which was where Salem was. So you have this flux of people who have experienced these tragedies of war. A lot of them had watched their families die in attacks, probably suffering from PTSD. Um, you have all these people who are coming down to settle in your area where resources are already stretched thin. You have disease outbreaks. And then, of course, you literally have the threat of war that is on your doorstep. In some ways, it's like, why did we come like, why here? Why are we here? What are we doing? <laughs> we'll just go south a little bit. We'll find us another spot. Okay, bye. But that was the thing with the Puritans is they, the Puritans believed that they were chosen. They were chosen to serve God. And some of them would be predestined for heaven. The others would be predestined for hell. So it's like, we are chosen. What? We are here to settle this area. We are here to live this this Bible-based society. So were some of the Puritans destined for heaven and hell? Or was it the Puritans were destined for heaven and other people were destined No, for within hell? the Puritan religion, they believe some are predestined for heaven and some are predestined for hell. I think I it got that right. It seems like if you figure out that you're predestined for hell, it's like, cool, I'm going to fuck up some lives, man. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, if you're predestined for or, it, uh, Or I'm life. saying that wrong. I might be saying that wrong. It could be that they thought, I don't even, I don't know. I, I did look it up. They said they did, they believed that there were chosen few, like the elite. And I'll talk about that more as far as like. Or maybe they didn't know. It's like, you don't know if you're destined for heaven and hell until after you die and get to the pearly gates. And St. Peter looks for your name in the book of life. Sorry, you're not in here. We can't let you They in. did believe they were chosen though. They believed that they were chosen. Right. Like we're right. This is why we left England. We don't believe in what they're teaching. We are going to follow the Bible. We're going to live by the Bible. We are chosen to serve God and we are chosen to lead this type of life. So um, I feel like every religion is the chosen ones, the chosen air quotes. One. They all feel chosen and they all feel they're right. right. So, yeah, obviously a lot of anxiety along with the fears of the supernatural, of the devil. There didn't seem to be a lot of happy downtime in the world of the Puritans. Oh, geez, like, I, <laughs> I mean, you work, you pray, you sit through sermons, you serve God, and you try to stay on the right path when you feel like everyone's trying to pull you off of that. Also in Salem, there were two Salems. So there was Salem Village, that's now present-day Danvers which we were, we'll go to next year. Another reason why I want yeah, to do this because we we're going next year. Salem Village was present-day Danvers, and Salem Town uh, was on the coast, and is cur like that's current Salem right now. Salem Town was a merchant town. Salem Village was primarily farmers. So 
you kind of have that split between the farmers and then the merchants and the more like communal type of Puritan life that's in the village with the farmers, as opposed to everything's very trade-based, kind of a different way of life with merchants. And the village, they thought that people in the town were kind of drifting away from that Puritan life. So they actually wanted to separate and break off from Salem town and to become independent, be their own town, have their own worship, um, like have their own church, have their own meeting houses because they were having to go to Salem town for all of that. So they wanted to break away and become independent and really like lead the strict religious life that they didn't see happening in Salem town. I wonder if there's this could be like where some of the Amish and Mennonite beliefs come in because they're very, you know, communal mm-hmm. and live simple lifestyles that are very face based, face based, face based. And it seems like that's where this could be kind of leaning. It's like we just want to farm our land and be connected with nature and God. And I don't really know the history of Amish and Mennonite. They do talk about the Quakers in here, and Puritans did not like the Quakers, um, not at all. They didn't like anyone who wasn't their religion, so they saw them as evil and being led more by the devil. But so you had this split where the village wanted to separate from the town. However, there were a lot of people in Salem Village that had connections to the town, whether they had friends there or they had trade opportunities there. So there was a split in Salem Village about who, like, we don't want to separate from the town. I hope this is making sense. It's going to be important to remember as we start talking about the trials escalating and why certain people are accused of witchcraft. So you've got the anxiety, you've got the split in the village of people wanting to leave and not, and the refugees and Native Americans. And so just kind of makes Salem almost a powder keg at this point of just exploding. I could see it. Um, I want to talk really quick about, before I get it starting as a timeline, just an interesting fact about witches in the Bible. How many times do you think that the term witch is used in the Bible? I've never read the Bible. <laughs> the Bible, obviously, is the main document they're using to kind of justify going after witches. I mean, honestly, my immediate answer would probably be zero, but oh. I remember that episode of The Simpsons where Bart and Milhouse are going through the Bible looking up swear words because if it's in the Bible, they're allowed to say it. Probably a lot. It's probably in there a lot. You are actually a little closer the first time. Actually, it's, it's mentioned less than a dozen. Really? Okay. Right. And this is going off the King James Bible because the King James Bible is actually a Puritan Bible. Old Testament or New Testament? I think it's the whole entire Bible. They mention witches, but there's absolutely no mention of what a witch is. Like yeah. it's so Exodus in Exodus, it's quoted, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. So basically it's saying witches aren't allowed. You can execute them, but it doesn't even define what a witch is. Doesn't that sound like wall? <laughs> I mean, seriously, like it's leaving it open. It's like, you're not going to tell me. What a witch is, you know, there's no mention of pointy hats. There's no broomsticks. There's no potions. There's nothing like there's nothing. If that's the primary like document that Mm -hmm. they or book that they use as a reference, like if that is like pretty much their law book, say that the Bible is their law book, it would be really easy to point at somebody, say you're a witch, point to this Bible verse and you have to die. Exactly. Exactly. So I never knew that about the mm -hmm. Bible either. 
And so the Penguin Book of Witches that I used, it, it goes into more of like a couple other places that witches are mentioned, but it makes a really good point. And it says really the only like quote characteristic that seems to show what a witch is, is difference. What? That can be anything. People that are different from the norms of society, people who don't dress like, I mean, this isn't specific, but it's just like different people that maybe don't dress like you do or pray like you do. Like that's really the only characteristic is anyone in society who is just different than what you are, which is obviously oh very broad, God. which you're going to see a lot in the accusations because um, it leaves the question wide open of what a witch is. Okay. Native Americans could be witches. Uh, black people could be witches. Um, people with mental illnesses or like autism could be witches. Literally anybody. Mm-hmm. Anybody. According to that. Holy crap. Yeah, we'll see that in a lot of the accusations. Um, I talk, I, I'm talking about, I'm obviously not mentioning everybody who's accused of witchcraft because there were almost 200 people, but I'm going to talk about the ones that we know a little bit more about um, and just give kind of a little bit of information about them. But in this Penguin Book of Witches, a direct quote from them, she says, if the Bible could not provide clarity on how to identify a witch and how to deal with her once identified, academic theologians appointed themselves equal to the task. So basically, these theologians who say they know the Bible so well are being like, we know what a witch is. We'll tell you. We'll figure it out. No problem. It's always women, too. It's always the witch is a she. Yeah, we'll talk about that, too. Okay, good. (laughs) We'll talk talk a lot about gender. (laughs) I had thoughts about that, too. (laughs) All right. So I'm finally into, this is going to be such a long episode. (laughs) It really is. It's important. Like, the more I was researching and listening, I also knew a lot of the podcasts that, like, really broke it down very basic. But I'm like, I want to dive deep into this. Like, I... I want the deep dive into this and as much information as possible because it's huge. It's a big part of our history that has a lot of tones still to present day. Like this didn't happen in a vacuum and things like this can still happen again. We don't realize that. All right. So January 1692, this is the start. Elizabeth or Betty Paris, as she's known, she's the daughter of Salem's minister, Samuel Paris and his niece, 11-year-old Abigail Williams, started having, quote, fits, which included contortions, throwing things, making strange sounds, and screaming outbursts. And I have a note here that says, I eat temper tantrums of literally every child at some point during their life, but whatevs. I was going to say, so they're 11, they're children. Exactly. Oh, I used to go into screaming fit. I would pass out. I would scream so hard and so loud. I would pass out. And there was one time where I did it and I fell face down, stiff as a board, onto my grandma's kitchen floor. Oh my God. (laughs) She thought I was dead. My mom's like, she's fine. Like, let's just get her up. (laughs) Like, she does this. But I would like, this would be a point of concern in Salem. So before these fits started, and again, I have that in quotes, the girls had started to experiment with fortune telling with the Paris household slave, Tichuba. Tichuba had come over from Barbados. She'd been brought over. She'd been purchased in Barbados from the Paris family and brought over to the household. So 
they've been go- doing these fortune telling kind of experiments with her where they would break an egg into a glass and you would read the egg white to kind of tell your future, like your future husband, your future, future social status. So obviously this kind of fortune telling was seen as something that was demonic and it's possible that the girls maybe experienced something. Maybe they saw something, interpreted it in a bad way, and it like freaked them out. The fact that they were playing around with something like this definitely was not accepted in Puritan religion. So I think that's important to remember, too, that they were kind of messing with stuff they weren't supposed to be messing with. A local doctor named William Griggs was brought in to examine them. He was the only doctor in town. He could read but could not write. And he had about nine medical texts, so he was a little limited in what he could do. He ruled out epilepsy of the girls. That was kind of the first and pretty much the only thing he was trying to look at. So he had the next best diagnosis, which was bewitchment. Oh, God. (laughs) This was an actual diagnosis back then. Yeah, so they're not epileptic. They're bewitched. They are, something's happening to them. Someone is tormenting them. A reverend named John Hale was also asked by the Parises to come and observe the kids. And he became one of the first ministers who believed that they were bewitched and wanted to find out who the witches were, who was responsible, what witches were responsible for this. Because when there's a bewitchment accusation, not accusation, bewitchment diagnosis, it's not like, ooh, are there witches out there that are doing this? No, it's like 100% fact. There's witches out there that are tormenting you. Um, John Hale would start to have doubts later in the trials after becoming like a full supporter. Um, He would make a full reversal when his wife, Sarah Hale, was accused. And just remember his name. It'll come up at the very end. I was just about to say, finally, something that's using their brain a little bit, maybe having a little common sense, but it's probably more of a case of, at least right now, I think it's more of a case of somebody I know is affected. Therefore, I'm changing my opinion, which is going on today, too. (laughs) Yes, it is. After the bewitchment diagnosis, several other girls in the community began having similar symptoms, um, just like Abigail and Betty. So those girls were Anne Putnam Jr. She was 12 years old and from a very prominent family. She was also friends with Betty and Abigail, and Anne would go on to be one of the most aggressive and vocal accusers at 12 years old. Um, Her name appears about 400 times in court documents. During these trials, she's 12. Um, A lot of people speculated that Anne was coerced into giving names of people that her family had issues with. Um, Anne's family was one of the more vocal families about the split from Salem Village and Salem Town. Like her family was very much wanting to split Salem Village with Salem Town. And they're a very prominent family. They have a lot of clout in the community. Mercy Lewis was also an accuser. She had been orphaned as a child when her family was killed by Native Americans. She worked as a servant and lived in the house of Thomas Putnam, who was related to Anne. At the time of the trial, she would have been 17 years old. Susanna Sheldon was 18. She was also a refugee in Salem from the wars. Mary Walcott was Anne Putnam Jr.'s cousin in 17. She would later be accused of witchcraft. Mary Warren was the oldest at 21. She was forced to become a servant when her family died. She worked in the Proctor house, who would later be accused. She would later speak out against her accusers or against the accusers and therefore be accused herself. God, this is like mean girls. It's like, I don't like you. I'm going to point the finger at you and accuse you of being a witch. 
there were accusers that would come kind of like in and out of the picture throughout these trials. Those were kind of the main ones that kind of went throughout the whole entire trial. A woman named Mary Sibley was the neighbor of the Parises, and she suggested a way to find out who was bewitching the girls. And it's called a witch cake. Uh oh. Which sounds counterintuitive. I was thinking we should like, make this for Halloween. No. But <laughs> you're shaking your head. No, no, no. Your eyes got really big. No. I'm going to tell you why. Because it's made out of rye flour and the pea of the inflicted. Oh, hell no. Yes. All right. Yeah. So okay, never mind. it's pea and rye flour. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. People ate that? No. You make it and you feed it to a dog. Okay. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So dogs are considered common familiars to witches. A familiar is okay. like, you know, it's usually a cat. Like in Hollywood, it's the black cat. Yeah. It's my cat. It's my freaking cat. <laughs> it's the familiar. It's- are you a witch? <laughs> No, but you feed it to a dog because the dog is considered one of the like common familiars. So it's like a witch's like companion. companion. Yeah, that's kind of used to help do her bidding. So the theory was you feed this witch cake to a dog and whosoever familiar it is, whatever witch has it as a familiar will then show herself. She'll be hurt. And, you know, she'll show the effect. She'll be hurt. So it kind of, like, names her as a witch. So the dog is a horcrux. Pretty much, yeah. The witch. Yeah. So <laughs> okay. Mary Sibley told Tichba, the slave, how to make this cake, and it was fed to a dog. There wasn't a clear diagnosis from the dog, shocker, but Reverend Paris got really angry because, hello, witch cake is kind of a form of magic <laughs> itself. And Reverend Paris stood up in church and denounced all of it saying quote going to the devil with help against the devils basically saying like you're doing witchcraft to try and take down witchcraft this doesn't make sense this is so messed up so mary sibley was suspended from communion which obviously was a huge deal oh that's Um, a big deal but she was forgiven when she stood up and confessed in front of the whole congregation and this whole this whole notion of confession was super important to the Puritans because they saw confession, um, especially confession publicly to the whole church, as a way to cleanse your soul. And this will come into play later during the trials as well. So confession's super important. Mary Sibley made the switch cake, but then she apologized and confessed to it and said, yes, I did this. I'm sorry. So they let her back in. So all was good for Mary Sibley. So if you were accused of being a witch, could you stand up and confess and say, yes, I'm a witch. I'm very sorry. And then you're forgiven. We'll talk about that. Because <laughs> I don't think that's how it's going to work. We'll talk about that. On February 29th, pressured to name who was bewitching them, Abigail Williams and Betty Paris named three people, Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. Sarah Good was a beggar who didn't conform to the norms of Salem. She was different. She didn't attend church on a regular basis. Sarah Osborne also didn't go to church on a regular basis. She was also, scandal, living with a man who was much younger than her and who had previously been a servant. So these women were the type of women you would expect to be accused of witchcraft because, you know, with Tichva, she was a slave and these other two were poor. They weren't attending church and they were seen as, again, different than what a normal Puritan would be. So they were easy targets. Oh, Lord. Yes. Whatever happened to like love that neighbor and all that stuff? Yeah, like, that does not happen I mean, here whatsoever. Help the poor. Like love. Yeah. I just. 
No, because horror can make you desperate and angry. And if you get angry, you're not allowed to be angry. That's going to, we'll talk about another woman who was accused, who that was her. Or instead of her accusing her of witchcraft, they could like give her some food, money and help her out. That's how we think now. Remember, you have to think of 1692. Right. That's so weird, though. I just can't wrap my brain around some of these early, like, super religious groups that think, okay, we live 100% by the Bible and the teachings of Jesus and all this, but it's like you don't always see it. Mm -hmm. It's like when the when the Spanish conquistadors, like, took over Mexico and they killed so many Aztecs and Mayans. And then it's like, but you're supposed to be Christian and Catholic at the time. Like, thou shalt not kill. Right. What? I don't understand. (laughs) What? what, How is this okay? Well, with in Salem, it's that extreme belief and fear of the supernatural. And what is the supernatural? What's the devil? It's something that's different than who you are. I guess for them, it's more favorable to God to kill the witch, in air quotes, Mm than to let them live and love that neighbor like that's not the kind of neighbor you have to love like there's a little asterisk by a little certain parts I guess. well and i'm pretty sure as far as what's listed as wrong in puritan society i i'm almost positive but i could be maybe wrong on this i think that witchcraft craft is actually listed before murder what it's also listed before bestiality oh my god and there's a man who's accused later and i'll talk about him he had actually beat one of his servants to death years earlier and got off with the fine so but then he's accused witchcraft which is like completely worse like his punishment for witchcraft was worse than the fact that he murdered somebody oh jeez, crazy times on March 1st, 1692, the three women were interrogated for several days in front of local magistrates, John Hawthorne and John Corwin. Both were merchants, not lawyers, by the way. And also, this wasn't a trial. This is what they call an examination of the charges. So it's kind of like a pretrial hearing. It's like an arraignment? Yeah, kind of yeah, like a pretrial for... hearing, okay. arraignment. Uh, usually, these examinations were done in private. This time was different. The accused were brought before the public and the girls who were accusing them. So these accusers, the afflicted girls, would go into these awful fits and just like drop onto the floor and roll around and scream and start pointing fingers at the person who's getting questioned and causing all the commotions during the proceedings. And there's not a judge who's going to tell people to calm down. Like, so, you know, you have these women who are accused of having to stand up in front of all of this and trying to defend themselves. Both Osborne and Good were asked the normal questions. They were asked about their reputations, their behavior, why they don't go to church. Both of them pled innocent. And then everything changed when Tichba came up onto the stand because at first she denied the accusations and then she very quickly confessed to being a witch, claiming that both Good and Osborne made her do it. She said there were other witches in the community, but only gave the names of Good and Osborne. She described how the devil made her sign his book, as quoted as saying, the devil came to me and bid me serve him. Tichaba described um, the devil as a man with a with black clothes and white hair. And it's been pointed out by several people that that um, description fits her okay, owner. Okay, that could be anybody. <laughs> but it fits her owner, Samuel Paris. In Tichaba's two testimonies, she gives a ton of detail. She talks about black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, which would be the familiars, 
the devil, the book, writing on sticks, sending out spirits to do harm. This is called spectral evidence. And this harm is usually done to children. What's really important to note here is that this, what she's saying, gives deep knowledge of the English beliefs and views on witchcraft. So this was way more detailed than Gooder Osborne would give. And this is coming from a slave who didn't know how to read. From Barbados. Like she, what does she know that's going on in England? Exactly. So. Is this where the whole witches riding on broomsticks comes from? That's more European. That's actually not like an American view, I think. Okay. What we know of witches now is like a mishmash of all these different views of witches, like the riding on broomsticks and the dancing around fire and the cauldrons and meeting in the woods and all of that. Like that's all very European and it wasn't really something that they believed as far as like the North American witches, but Tituba starts talking about that. The jury's still out with me on Tituba. Like I still don't know why she's confessing and all this stuff, but on some way, like in some level, I'm kind of happy she's like sticking it to her owner. <laughs> uh, we'll talk more about Tituba. She's, I think she had her reasonings. I don't know if she's good or bad yet, but this is a lot of people think this is almost too consistent in almost like textbook of what the English manuals would have said to describe witchcraft. Again, she's a slave who can't read. So what is she knowing? These details. So in the Penguin Book of Witches, they talk about like these details were very scholastic. This wasn't folk knowledge. This wasn't stuff like people were talking about as far as like folklore. These were like the scholarly views of witches. So these details that were coming from a slave's mouth really points to coercion, both in like her confession, as well as maybe what had been instructed to be said. So there is a theory that goes into a lot of people think Paris, who will talk about this theory in the end, Paris, um, Samuel Paris wanted to use the trials as a way to gain ground kind of like politically in the community because he wasn't very well liked and that he actually beat her so she would confess and actually like told her you're going to say this because unfortunately this confession it blew everything wide open and really like lit a fuse in Salem bad for her because they believed that a confessed witch's word was enough evidence to bring you in for accusations so if you confess and point to somebody, your word as a confessed witch means more, like that's very strong evidence. So that's enough to bring you in. There could be no evidence, but they could say, so-and-so named you as a witch, so we're bringing you in. And you could be killed simply for that fact. So Tituba's confess confession also pointed to something bigger than just a few witches being accused here and there, which was what was very common in the European witch trials. Like it would just be like a couple witches here and there, but Tishiba's confession really made it seem like there was a conspiracy and that there were witches like all over the community. Now I feel bad for her because she's being used at this point. You talked about someone confessing, you know, what if they stood there and confessed to being a witch? Yeah. Like in church. They didn't have the presumption of innocent until proven guilty. If you confessed, that was your best way to be saved and not, I will go, I will tell you now, Tichaba made it through. Good. I listened to one podcast and they kept saying like, that's bizarre. Like that you would confess to a crime and then get off. Yeah. Like to us, that's bizarre. You confess to a crime, you get thrown in jail. And it almost seems like a, okay, they confessed. So they're almost on the mend. They're apologizing. They're getting better. 
And now we can use them as well to get more witches. So they confessed. Like they're trying, you know, they're trying, you know, what am I trying to say? They confessed. They're trying to change their ways. And they're trying to change their ways. Exactly. So side. if you confess, that was the best way to save yourself. So they didn't put them in jail. I mean, they obviously didn't put them to death. No, they put her in jail. She stayed in jail. Okay. She oh, actually well, stayed nice. in jail past the end of it because Samuel Paris refused to get her out. Yeah. So these three women were questioned for days and then they were sent to jail. But even though she confessed, she still had to go to jail. And one reason for this was because they kind of hoped if we hold you, you'll name more witches. So we're going to keep you in one spot. You can name more witches and not like go off and do whatever you want. Like they all know each other. Like, isn't that kind of stereotypical? Like you're a witch, you know, all the other witches. <laughs> right. Like, no, I don't know your cousin that lives in the other village. <laughs> that could be a witch. <laughs> so later in March, there were more women that were accused. So the accusa accusations are starting to roll in. This included Martha Corey, Dorothy Good, Rebecca Nurse, and Rachel Clinton. Dorothy Good was Sarah Good, the woman who was just accused. It was her yeah. daughter. She's four years old. Oh, my God. Yes. She's four? She's four. How do you arrest a four-year-old? Well, not only did they arrest her, they questioned her before oh my local God. magistrate for three days straight without oh my her mother, obviously without an attorney because you weren't allowed an attorney then. They didn't have that right then. So they took this poor little four-year-old girl in front of these magistrates, in front of the public, and in front of these girls who were accusing her. But here's and the thing. Investigate it. What? Four-year-olds have very active imaginations. So you can ask a kid something. And Dana, they can you're say, in oh, 1692. I'm, <laughs> you're not allowed to have an imagination. Rainbow. No. And then, oh, that's it. You're a witch. Holy crap. No, but also it's important to realize what a girl was supposed to be in Salem. You're not allowed to play and have toys and play games and have fun. Like, you are supposed to stay silent. You do not speak until you're spoken to. You have to obey your parents. You have to listen to sermons. You have to listen to the Bible. Like, little girls aren't like God. how we got to be little girls. Like, you weren't allowed to be. And so because of this, she was brought in front of people for three days and questioned, and she confessed to being a witch. Oh, and my God. said that her mother had also spent time with the devil. And two of the afflicted accusers, Mary Walcott and Ann Putnam Jr., said that Dorothy bit them and repeatedly acted like they were being bit in the same arms during Dorothy's examination. So, Okay, these are the mean girls. They're the mean girls. They're just doing this to be bitches. Mm -hmm. While in jail, Dorothy also told officials she owned a snake that sucked blood from her finger. So people were like, okay, that's her familiar. Again, not just a little kid's imagination or trying to save herself. They're just like, all right, that's her familiar. Dorothy was the youngest person jailed, and it wasn't until December 10th that she was released on bond and luckily never indicted or put on trial. Little Dorothy made it through. Oh, thank God for that, at least. Um, we're going to talk about now about Martha Corey, who might be my favorite person in all of these trials. I'll tell you why. So Martha <laughs> Corey was arrested on March 21st, 1692. She was one of the first accused that seemed different than the rest. She went to church. She was the wife of Giles Corey, who will come into play later, and she had money. She was also called what is called a full church member. This meant that she was one of the probable people to go to heaven. So she's 
like she's important she's like a church elder she's got status kind of i don't think they had elders but she had status so she was one of the elected that was gonna go to heaven um however she did have kind of an iffy past because she had an illegitimate mixed race (gasps) child before she was scandalous oh my god the horror oh my god (laughs) She and her husband, Giles, actually attended some of the early examinations in the trials when they first started. And Martha expressed doubts. She was just like, I don't really believe these afflicted girls. I don't really believe that they're witches in, in Salem. How dare she use common sense? You go, girl. But obviously that gets her in trouble. Of course. How dare you have an opinion? Her husband wanted to go back and watch some more of the other examinations. And she told him no. She said, this is pointless. And to stop him from going, she hid his saddle from him so he couldn't ride into town. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Which She's is like badass. stealing someone's car keys. She's like stealing someone's car keys. She's like, I'm stealing your saddle. But this apparently made her look guilty for some reason for hiding the saddle because everyone starts saying, well, she's trying to stop the trials and she's afraid that she's going to be found out. So it made her look bad because women aren't allowed to have any independence in no this time in history. Can't use no your brain. opinions. She was accused by Ann Putnam Jr. And I say Jr. because Ann Putnam's mom was also called Ann Putnam. Oh, okay. And she was a sometimes accuser. So that's she's known as Ann Putnam Jr. So Ann Putnam Jr. and Mercy Lewis accused Martha. And Two men named Edward Putnam and Ezekiel Cheevers decided they were going to investigate these claims. So they first went to Ann Putnam's house, and she said that Martha's spirit had attacked her. So this is called like spectral evidence that's used. So it's basically saying, like, this person's spirit attacks me, not the normal person, because witches could supposedly send out their spirits to attack people. Right. So Ann Putnam says, her spirit attacked me. And they said, okay, well, can you tell me what her spirit was wearing what clothes she was wearing and says, well, she blinded me temporarily. So I don't know. (laughs) Just super convenient. But they took everything these girls said as truth because, you know, they're seen as accusing witches. So they're like, okay. So these men then went to Martha's house and they said when she opened the door, she immediately knew why they were there. And she, when she said, you know, when she said it's such to be like, you know, I know what brings you here. They said she sounded smug, which was, again, a no-no for a Puritan woman to show a little bit of attitude. And so the men told her about Anne's claims about her being blinded. And she meet, and Martha immediately asked something about like, well, could she tell you what my spirit was wearing? And again, she was seen as smug and mocking. And so the accusers were like, all right. We have what we're looking for, and we believe the information. She's a witch because, oh my God, a woman isn't allowed to be sassy. She's not allowed to show attitude. She's not allowed to be defiant against these claims against her. No one really stopped to be like, so did somebody warn you that we were going to be asking this question? They just saw like, she read our minds. She knew what we were going to ask. Because she's intelligent. She can see what's going on and put two and two together. And men are scared of strong, intelligent women. Therefore, you're a witch. That's why most witches are women. And also, it was kind of found later that her husband Giles was the one that told her, like, hey, these guys are coming around asking about your clothes. But he would never defend her later. So, okay, this is what I love. This is what makes me love Martha. 
arrest warrants weren't allowed to be issued on Sundays because obviously it's the day of rest. So um, they ran out of time on Saturday to issue her warrant. So she had to wait. They had to wait until Monday to do that. So she was free until from like Saturday night, late Saturday night to Monday. Who do you think showed up for church on Sunday like normal? (laughs) (laughs) Martha, HBIC Corey, who sat in the pew like a big middle finger to everyone saying, I'm going to worship here if I want to. I love her. She is my favorite. She's a smug bitch. I love it. I love her. She's like, I'm going to sit here just like I always Mm -hmm. do. Yes. So <laughs> I bet they hated that so much. <laughs> I know. Like, cause everyone knew she was accused. Everyone knew yeah. that she was going to be arrested and they walk in and it's hey, like, be scared of me All sitting right. in church. What are you going to do? Nothing. Cause it's Sunday. <laughs> so she was finally arrested. And when she came in for her examination, she was very skeptical about the accusations. She called the afflicted girls distracted, which is, their term for crazy. So she calls them crazy. And at one point during her testimony, one of the girls says there's a man whispering in her ear. And when asked about this, this Martha responds, we must not believe all that these distracted children say. So basically we can't believe what these crazy kids are saying. Oh, these crazy kids today. But this hurt her because she had publicly come out against them before she was accused. And then she questions them during her examination. So this was seen as Martha going against faith. If you doubted the accusers, that meant that you doubted that there was the devil, which meant you doubted the Bible and God. Damn, they twist that all kinds of ways. They really do. So if you come out and say anything against the accusers and show doubt, it means you're doubting the Bible, which means you doubt God, which means you're a witch, which means you're evil and you're being misled. So... No one in the community could openly doubt anything without becoming a target. These girls started to have so much power in society. So no one could say anything against them because they could turn around and then be like, hey, her spirit came to me at night and asked me to sign the devil's book. I'm still, I've dubbed this whole group the mean girls because that's what they are. They're just the mean girls. People had to keep their mouth shut, even if they had family that was accused because they had to weigh like, am I going to defend my family or am I going to get, am I going to get accused myself? During her examination, the afflicted girl started to mimic Martha's movements. So just like she was controlling them. So she might like turn her head a certain way and then someone would turn their head the same way or they would move their arm in a certain way. And then Ann Putnam Jr. said there was a small yellow bird that was sucking between her fingers. So it's like, okay. Unfortunately, Martha was indicted on two counts of witchcraft against Mercy Lewis and a girl named Elizabeth Hubbard. And she was actually sent to Boston um, to sit in jail because the Salem jails were becoming full. Imagine. You couldn't let the four-year-old be on house arrest or something to make room for her? Seriously. All right. Next is Rebecca Nurse. I've heard of her story. Her story is actually pretty popular. And my fourth grade teacher is a descendant of the Nurse family. Yes. This is how I learned about the witch trials. My fourth grade teacher taught us about the witch trials because of her ancestors. My fourth grade teacher was the best teacher in the world. Um, She also taught me about a ghost story that I will be talking about at some point in the future as well. She was my favorite teacher. Love her. Okay, so Rebecca Nurse was also a full church member, and she was very, very well liked in the community. She was also 71 years old, and Holy she was crap. one of the oldest accused. That was a lot for that time period, right? Because didn't people die really young? Yeah. Wow. Her primary accuser was Ann Putnam Jr., and her the mother, 
and Putnam Senior. Yeah, so father, father, mother-daughter duo in this one. This is important because the nurse family and the Putnam family had been arguing for years over property lines. Oh, it's a Hatfield-McCoy situation. A lot of people believe that Anne Putnam was possibly coached by her mom to give Rebecca's name. Um, the accusations of Rebecca Nurse also officially brought into question the use of spectral evidence, which I just talked about that of like your spirit being sent out. Because Rebecca Nurse was bedridden. She was so sick that she couldn't even get out of bed. They couldn't say, like, she's going around town doing stuff. She couldn't even get herself out of bed. Her accusers were saying her spirit was coming to them and tormenting them. Why? What is the point of doing all this to a four-year-old child and a 71-year-old woman? Like, just how do you think this is okay? People still don't know how to answer it. This was so insane. And it's still insane. I mean, you are just a mean person. They were not nice. It becomes almost impossible to defend yourself against spectral evidence because you can't even you can't even start to, to defend yourself against that. I think they're using the term evidence a little loosely. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Sometimes all people could do was just be like, I'm innocent. Like, I can't, I don't know how to prove that, but I'm innocent. And poor Rebecca Nurse, she gets up there and she's like, this is a direct quote from her. She says, I am innocent as the child unborn, but surely what sin hath God found out in me unrepented that he should lay such affliction on me in my old age. So basically she's saying like, Aww. I know I'm not guilty of this, but I must have done something to make God mad that he is doing this Poor to woman. me. Like, I feel so bad for her. I'm like, oh my God, it's been 330 years and I just want to give you a hug. I know. It's, like, it's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. Rebecca Nurse was examined, she was officially charged, and she was sent to jail. Rachel Clinton was arrested on March 29, 1692. She was from Ipswich, so she wasn't even from Salem. So at this point, the accusations are jumping town lines. Oh, dear. Right. And Rachel had a hard life. She had fallen for class. Like She at one point had a lot of money. She was high class. She lost her inheritance. So she ended up on the streets begging for money and food. Her husband was awful. She tried to divorce him. She ended up going to jail for having an affair, even while her husband got married and had other kids, still married to her. She was sent back out on the streets when she was released from jail, begging for food, begging for money. Neighbors made statements against her saying that she caused the death of someone that she passed by. People claim she yelled things like hellhound and whoremasterly rogue at people. <laughs> what? Say that again. Hellhound? Whoremasterly rogue. That sounds like a great band name. <laughs> it does. Like a metal band. <laughs> All right. Whoremasterly rogue. Coming after tonight. House to Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. Some higher class woman said that Rachel had, quote, hunched them with her elbow, which I took as just meaning like elbowing. So yeah, which Rachel was arrested on March 29th and examined, but luckily she was, she was released once the trials ended. So she was never indicted. She never faced trial. Um, but she, I did want to mention good. her because she really is an example of how dangerous of this it is at this time to be an angry woman. We touched on that for a second. Like, you're not allowed to be angry if you're a woman. She may have had a mental illness, too. Oh, but she had a ton to be angry about. She was right. bored. She had to beg for food. She had all these people accusing her of stuff. She was thrown in jail. And it's okay for your husband to go off and get remarried and right. have affairs, but it's not okay for me, too. And she, it wasn't okay for her to express her anger. She was expected to sit back, shut up, and not get angry. So she's the example of, like... <laughs> 
what women still go through these days. You're not allowed to be angry. You're not allowed to show an opinion, even though you have a lot to be angry about. Oh, well, then you're emotionally unstable and possessed or whatever. If a man does it, then he's passionate and strong. Right. But if a woman does it, then she's crazy. She's overreacting. She can't handle her emotions. She's too reckless. Started. All right. So we're in April now and the accusations are continuing. Obviously, I'm not going to name everybody because this would be a four hour podcast, but I'm going to (laughs) continue with just some notable ones. Um, I want to talk real quick about a woman named Sarah Cloyce who was accused. She was Rebecca Nurse's sister, and she was arrested in April. And what got her accused? She defended Rebecca in church, got so mad that people were saying these things about her sister that she walked out of church and slammed the door. Oh, heaven forbid, that's it. You're a witch. Days later, her warrant was issued for her arrest. God. She was examined on April 11th, refused to confess, and spoke out against her confusion. Can accusers, she was thrown in jail with Rebecca. Really quickly, her story, she was actually indicted on September 9th. She was in jail when Rebecca would be executed. And Aww. But fortunately, she was released December 1692 after her indictment pretty much said, like, we don't know. We don't know if he did this or not, but we're letting you go. They executed a bedridden mm-hmm. 71-year-old woman. I'll talk about the executions in a bit. Um, yeah, the executions happened really fast, actually. It's going to be a bummer, isn't it? This is a bummer story. But the good thing about Sarah, she would spend the last 10 years of her life trying to clear her sister's names. And they had another Aww, sister, I believe Mary Eastie, who's their third sister. She was also accused and executed. So Sarah Cloyce was the only sister who survived. And there's a movie called Three Sovereigns for Sarah. It was like a PBS movie. I watched it in fourth grade after my teacher told me about it. And it's all about her story of clearing her sister's names. Um, there were uh, there was a husband and wife named Elizabeth and John Proctor. Elizabeth Proctor was pregnant, but arrested in April after being accused. And her fetus is a witch. Oh, yeah. Um, some people believe she was accused because her husband John had spoken out against the afflicted girls, and because he defended his wife, he was arrested the same day. I was. Just going to ask, how come he wasn't arrested if he's defending them and they arrest her? Okay, I'm glad he got arrested then. Well, don't <laughs> I mean, I'm not glad he got arrested because he's falsely accused, but... And the next was Giles Corey, who was Martha Corey's husband. He was arrested. He hadn't defended his wife when she got arrested. He really got caught up in the hysteria of it all. But then he gets arrested and he's like, I'm... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a witch. I didn't do this. But he obviously ultimately was charged as well. He was examined on April 18th and refused to enter a plea. This will be important later. Um, I'll talk about how he died. He, and he was sent to prison where he awaited trial. Also in April, Bridget Bishop, Mary Warren, who was also an accuser, Deliverance Hobbs and her stepdaughter, Abigail Hobbs, were all arrested. Mary Warren, Deliverance, and Abigail Hobbs all confessed and began to name other witches. Oh, my God. Yep. Um, Bridget Bishop, she was examined on the 19th. She was accused of tormenting several of the afflicted girls, such as, obviously, Anne Putnam, Mary Walcott, Mercy Lewis, and the Hobbs. So this is where I wanted to talk about why people confess and kind of touched on it earlier about if you confess, you kind of get out of it. No one who confessed was hanged. So if, if they said, hey, I did this, you weren't hanged. No one was executed if you said, hey, I'm guilty. I did this. 
Well, now it's snowballing out of control because literally everybody's just going to confess, point the finger at somebody else. But they don't. And that's what I wanted to talk about. Why some would confess and some wouldn't. So I think you're not going to confess because, again, think of... Because you're innocent. No, no. Think of how the Puritans look at what could send them to hell. Lying can yeah. send you to hell. Oh, and yeah. they, like, now... If, I, if I'm freaking accused of witchcraft right now, and I know, okay, if I just say did it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to confess. Heck, I don't believe in hell like they did. So I'll be like, yeah, I did it. Sure. Just to like <laughs> save my own butt. But they believe if I lie, that's a sin and I will be sent to hell for this. So a lot of people are going to risk their soul just to get that's out of it. That's a sin greater than witchcraft or lying? Exactly. Holy like, moly. That will send you to hell. So some of these people who they were like, just confess. They're like, I'm not going to tell a lie. I can't confess to something that I'm not guilty of. I'm not going to do it. This is bananas. So I think that's why people didn't confess. And the ones that did, I have a theory about the ones that did. I think some just, they were like, I just want to get out of this. And they just want to save themselves and save their own lives. But I also have, it popped into my head, and this is straight out of my own brain. There's no like scientific proof of this, but it's a theory. I wondered about, I almost see these women undergoing emotional abuse from early age, as far as what they're told about being a woman. So men and women were seen like equal in the eyes of God for Puritans. But the podcast I listened to, the history podcast, they said women and men were not seen equal in the eyes of the devil. Everyone believed that women were more susceptible to giving into the devil, that they were weaker. They were more inclined to say yes to the devil and sign their name. I mean, look at Eve. You have Eve. I mean, it goes back to the very first story. Adam and Eve. Eve took a bite of the apple. She wasn't supposed to. So everyone thought, oh my God, women are more likely to say yes to the devil. Women are more likely to be witches, which I think was just being afraid that a woman's going to become too powerful. So wanting to push them down every chance you can get. But these women are being told from a very early age, like, you're weaker. You will say yes to the devil. Men won't, but women will. And they're kind of like, it's like that form of emotional abuse where you're being told that over and over and over. So you have to wonder if some of these women who confessed almost believed like, okay, I guess I am. They've been gaslighted. Exactly. Yes. So now they think they believe it. It's like they're told the same thing over and over and over and they see it with other people. So they think, and this is probably why people confess to crimes that they didn't commit. They probably think, okay, maybe I did do something wrong. Or if I just say I did it, it'll go or away. Like, I know I did wrong. I know I've, I know I've sinned. I, I know like I, I spoke up against my husband. I said something mean to my neighbor. So I've sinned. So maybe I did do that. So I do wonder how many people like just got broken down from years of being told you're a woman, you're going to do this. So, I mean, look at Rebecca Nurse. She was like, I don't know what I did, but I think I did something to make God mad. So that's just out of my brain and why I think maybe some women did confess. April 30th, we have a really big jump in who gets accused. And his name is Reverend George Burroughs. Dun, dun, dun. He's a reverend. Right. Burroughs had been a minister in Salem in the 1680s for three years. He didn't get along with parishioners, including the Putnams, again, the Putnam name. And he ended up moving out of Salem after three years. And so at this point, accusations are not only jumping lines, like town lines, they're going up the hierarchy. Like now we're getting us a reverend 
And that's a big <laughs> We're getting deal. us a reverend. <laughs> um, there is a story. He didn't live in Salem. He lived in Wells. And there's a story that a huge storm hit when they were bringing him from Wells to Salem to be examined. So a big storm hit. So obviously it delayed well, it. He did it. But everyone was like, it. well, obviously that's the devil trying to stop him from being arrested. So of course it's not just, you know, regular weather patterns in April. So whatever. <laughs> But again, that that does go back to like all these little things have some kind of like supernatural explanation for them. It's not just weather; right. like it's it's like those weather patterns and what is United States of America or will become that in that area at the time. It, it's April. It's spring. Storms happen. They don't know like, that yet. <laughs> um. So when Burroughs was questioned on the ninth, he couldn't answer a lot of like basic questions. So he couldn't. Tell them the last time he had had communion, which was odd for a minister. He said only one of his children had been baptized. He had been asked about his previous house, if it had like ghosts in it, been haunted. And he was like, no, but it had an infestation of toads in it. And so everyone, yeah, but everyone was like, okay, toads, like that's, those are familiars. So you're a witch. And some of the accusers, including, um, I believe maybe Abigail Hobbs said that he brought her puppets to stick with thorns. So like puppets, poppets, I've seen used like voodoo dolls. And Putnam Jr. said that he also visited her, which is interesting because Burroughs has had a big disagreement with Anne's father about money when he had been in Salem and hadn't been paid. He was really seen kind of as like the ringleader of all these conspiracy of witches. Like here's the man that's leading all these witches around. Um, a lot of the accusers during the examination said that they saw spirits of his dead wives floating around and that they were telling the accusers that he needed justice for hurting that he had hurt them he had murdered them so yeah it was like there's the dead wives we see the dead wives floating around he was charged with four counts he was put in jail and also sadly on may 10th the first woman who was accused sarah osborne died in jail oh at this point, at least 71 more warrants were issued around Salem. How many people are living in Salem right now? <laughs> it's about everybody. Salem was about 500 people. So this isn't just in Salem. You have towns, um, you have Ipswich, you had Beverly, you had Andover was another area where accused were coming from. So almost a fifth of your population has been accused. Yes. Holy crap. At this point, there are about 125 people in jail in Salem and in Boston. Obviously, I will not name all of them. <laughs> so at this point there hadn't been any trials because Salem's charter had expired from England and they weren't allowed to try any of these cases without a charter. So eventually on May 27, 1692, the special court of Oyer and Terminer was established to start trials in, of all these people who were sitting in jail. Oyer means to hear, Terminer means to decide. So it's to hear and to decide. And William Stoughton was named Chief Justice by William Phipps, who was the one to establish the, um, the court. And he had actually come back from England with this new charter. Like, hey, I have this charter. Now we can have this court that starts hearing these trials because we have such a huge backlog at this point. The court convened on June 2nd, 1692. Bridget Bishop was the first person called to trial. She had 
um, actually previously been accused of witchcraft years earlier for murdering her first husband. So she didn't really have a good reputation going Whoa. into this. So uh, she was let off at that point. But yeah, so they said one, you know, a couple of things that pointed to her being a witch. She wore clothes that were dark and against the Puritan style dress. That was like the main thing that she wore. They didn't clothes. all wear dark colored clothing or am Apparently I mistaken? Not. Apparently not. Cause her clothes were dark and maybe they were all dark. Maybe she didn't have any white. I don't know. These people. Maybe I'm not. confusing them with pilgrims that they kind of wore like black dresses and muted clothes, like clothing. Okay. Dark, it just says dark clothes. So no rainbow tie-dye shirts for her. <laughs> no. Just she was Sorry. the golf girl of the group. <laughs> um, so People claimed that she would pinch, choke, and bite them. They said her specter was seen threatening to drown people if they didn't sign the devil's book. Anytime Bridget would look at any of the afflicted, they would go into fits and only stop when Bridget would be brought forward to lay her hands on them. And this was called touch evidence because it was said that if a witch was afflicting somebody, the only way that person would stop having their fits was if the witch touched them. That's kind of like when they do, not exorcisms. What is it when you go to church and it's like demons out and the minister puts their hands on you and expels the demons? The power of Christ compels you. Something, you know what I'm talking about though. Like I do. you see it in the big mega churches when they're having like revival oh, yeah. or something. Yeah. And somebody like he puts the preacher puts his hands on the person and they'll pass out or something. But it's isn't it called like putting hand or laying hands. Or I don't something? know what it's called. I but that's Catholic. what that reminds me of. Yeah. Well, that's the only way they would stop was if Bridget would lay her hands on them. So Okay. <laughs> so obviously that's like, you're a witch. So again, how do you defend yourself against that? Where they're like, go touch these people. <laughs> oh, I got, my brain is about to explode with the lack of common sense in this. God, religion makes people do crazy things. Oh my God, yeah. One man in town said that one time Bridget had come to him and asked him to dye a piece of lace for her. And this guy said that the only thing that that small piece of lace could be used for was a poppet. Of course, you can't use that for anything else. But then, of course, they go to the house and they said they found poppets in her house along with, and this is what made me crack up, her cat that seemed bewitched. And I was like, oh, oh my God, my cat. God. If anyone thought I was oh a witch God. and came to my house and saw my cat, I would be, I would have been. You wouldn't even a have a trial. <laughs> they would just like build the gallows in your living room and just hang you right there. She was also examined to find her witch's teat, which was another form of evidence. What? It's what the familiar is said to feed from. Yeah. So this could be really any mark. It could be something that looks like a mole or a bug bite or just like a bump or something. And that was said like, oh, that's your witch's teat. That's where your familiar feeds from. So she submitted to this examination. Well, I don't know if she submitted, but she was told, you're going to go through this examination. Yeah, We're going to find your witch's teat. And these midwives that examined her, they found... What was it? They went through six women and they found several spots that they called abnormal and unnaturally positioned. So like moles, freckles, any kind of yeah. imperfection. Oh my God. Yeah, that's directly from the book, The Witches. She talks a lot about that. Okay. Take the accusers and the people doing the examinations and you examine them. I bet money they have a little a witch's teeth on their own bodies. I have moles all over my back. I still get them. I'll... I'll like take a shower and like, where did this come from? 
Like all of a sudden there's something new. <laughs> yeah. So in the end, on June 2nd, she was found guilty because of her, quote, immoral oh lifestyle. And a man named Cotton Mather, who he was like, he wrote a lot about the witch trials. He, you know, as they were happening, he was, you know, he observed a lot of the witches he was just another person to be judging all of these women and give his, like, the one to give, like, a scholarly opinion. And Cotton Mather basically stated that her guilt was obvious because she had lied so much on the stand. Bridget Bishop was the first person executed in the Salem Witch Trials and was hanged on June 10th, 1692. Aww. You know. Um, this is where it just gets sad for me. It's just, it's so like, we're so far removed from all this. It's been over 300 years, but still it's like, this is so awful what these people went through. It, it, it's like you said, it's like women being gaslighted. It's, it is abuse of women. It's having a trial without any evidence and a conviction that you cannot possibly fight against. Like nobody will fight in your favor. So you're screwed. If you're accused, you're pretty much screwed. You can't even defend your family because then you're going to get accused yourself. You can't say anything wrong against any of the accusers. I would have just left Salem. I'm like, all right, you know what? It's Sunday. Nothing's going to happen today. I'm skipping church. I'm packing up, moving out. But you skip church. You're a witch. Why are you going to skip church? Yeah, but I'm moving out of town. Ain't nobody going to find me. You're a woman. You can't go. Well, my husband will come too, hopefully. Your husband. Your husband's not going to listen to you. No, I'll just go somewhere else and tell somebody my husband got killed, like, on the road. But then you lied. You're a witch. You're a woman traveling by yourself. You're a witch. See, this is... God, I am screwed. No matter what. (laughs) I'm so screwed. Women have nothing at this time. I would be accused of being a witch, and I would have to turn into one of the mean girls. But then again, that's lying. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't find a way out of this. No. I'm trying. (laughs) Okay, so... So, okay, after the court executed Bridget Bishop, they took a small break to consult with some, quote, influential ministers because they had some questions. Be like, hopefully, they're like, is this really a good idea? They're kind of like, hey, are we doing this right? Do you think we should be moving forward? Whatever. Cotton Mather, he sent the response, um, eight points, basically, like, here's some guidelines. And so the first seven, he talked about, Things like basically saying, like, don't use the spectral evidence as your sole evidence against a person. You okay, need something Grace. else. And you also need to be very careful with people who are accused who have that good reputation in society, like in the town. You have to move forward with, quote, tenderness w- with them. And also warn that the devil can appear as somebody who is innocent. So he's like, you need to be careful. But his last point, point eight, he starts with nevertheless, and then almost seems to backtrack on everything he just says and tells the court they need to proceed speedily and vigorously. And the court got this document back and they pretty much ignored everything that Cotton Mathers said about <laughs> the sexual evidence. And they proceeded and it was just like conviction, conviction, conviction. Like they ignored everything. All right, the and, last one's the one that matters. And sometimes all they used was spectral evidence. So they just ignored everything. They're like, all right, here we go. We're just, we're just going to do this. I like how he said proceed with caution if it's a prominent family, but if it's a homeless woman. He didn't say prominent. He just said ones that have good reputations. Still. It's implying that if you're poor, you have bad reputations. I would imply it. Whatever. Patriarchy. Jeez. Um, the courts reconvened on June 30th. And more people were continuing to be accused during all of this. At the end of June, middle of July, we have Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, Sarah Wilds, and Rebecca Nurse all went to trial. 
Rebecca Nurse, who was the one who was bedridden, her trial began June 30th, 1692. 39 people signed a petition to defend her, which is huge oh, wow. because that's a huge risk for people. She was that well-liked yeah, in society is. that 39 people came out to be like, no, she did not do this. Several family members came forward to support her. While this was happening, of course, these afflicted girls would carry on and they would break in fits. But did anybody ask why now? Because she's 71. She's had a long life. Like, why now all of a sudden is she being accused of witchcraft? I feel like if she, if she was a witch... Somebody would have figured it out a long time ago. There's no age limit on witches. I mean, look at the picture of what we think of as a witch. It's like the old hag, you know? It's That's true. Um, surprisingly, Rebecca was originally found not guilty by the jury. Really? However. Oh, God. When they came back with a not guilty verdict, the afflicted girls went into huge fits and tantrums. God, these girls. So bad that the judge called the jury back and said, you need to maybe go over the evidence again. We might have missed something, which apparently oh was God. like legal practice during the time. So what the jury did is they went back to a comment that Rebecca had made where she referred to the accused Deliverance Hobbs, who was in jail at the time. Um, Rebecca referred to her as, quote, one of us or of her company. I've seen it both ways. Probably the accused. That she means like we're the accused. Yeah, the jury asked Rebecca about this and she didn't immediately answer the question. And a reason for this could have been. Probably couldn't hear. She said exactly. That was why she was partially deaf. And a lot of people think she probably just didn't hear a question. But because she didn't answer, the jury took that non-answer as Rebecca had been referring to deliverance as a witch. And so they changed the oh verdict God. to guilty. Oh, my God. So Rebecca would later write a response to this where she said, no, wait, I referred to one of us, meaning a fellow prisoner, not a witch. But at that point, right. it was too it was too late. So it didn't matter. On July 3rd, she was excommunicated from the church and she was hung up on Gallows Hill on Proctor's Ledge on July 19th, 1692, along with Sarah Good, Aww. who was the first accused, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, and Sarah Wilds. She was buried in a shallow grave at the site because they were not allowed Christian burials. So these bodies were thrown, just like thrown into ditches. Thrown Dig into a hole in the ground. They in didn't there. even care. But there is a story, there's a rumor that her family actually went that night, dug her up, and took her back to her land to be buried at her house. And no I've one knows to this day where she's buried. But her house is in Danvers, and you can go to the house that still stands in Danvers. I bet they can do some, like, ground-penetrating mm -hmm. radar sonar stuff. I wonder if they could find... And bones. I think the family did put a marker up, so a lot of people think, like, she is buried there. That poor woman. I know. I, I know back then a Christian burial was important to them, but like you don't need a burial a certain way to go to heaven. Yeah, but they didn't believe that then. Like I know. In August, Martha Carrier, George Jacobs Sr., John Willard, Elizabeth and John Proctor, and the former Salem minister, George Burroughs, went on to trial and all were convicted. Of course. George Burroughs' trial was on August 5th. His accuser said he bit them. And then they could show the, quote, wounds on them that were examined and said to have a perfect match from his bite. So I guess they have some dental experts there as well in Salem. Yeah, so we're doing that again? I thought that evidence was kind of considered faulty nowadays. Someone testified he'd showed superhuman strength at one point by being able to lift a rifle with one finger and also could carry barrels of cider by himself. 
no one saw him do this. They just heard him say that he could do it. He was probably drunk at a bar and bragging about it. No man can ever lie about his strength. He never exaggerates his strength at all. Whatever. Oh, no, men don't do that. They said that he had been chosen by the devil because he was a minister and then he would be able to have influence on his parishioners. So obviously this scared the crap out of the people of Salem because they're like, oh my gosh, the devil has infiltrated the church. He's in the church. This is bad. His trial was huge. Up to 30 people testified against him. Well, his parishioners didn't like him, so. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, in the end, Burroughs was found guilty and sentenced to hang. On August 19th, he was taken up to Proctor's Ledge near Gallows Hill for his execution. The crowd had gathered. Burroughs stepped forward when it was his time and before everyone cited the Lord's Prayer flawlessly from beginning to end. And there was a belief that if you were a witch, you would not be able to do this. The devil would not let you recite the Lord's Prayer. And he did it beginning to end. No problem. So obviously when he did that, people were kind of like, wait a second. This is, he shouldn't be able to do this if he's a witch. And it like was stirring some, something up in the crowd. Like people were shocked. It was some people were even like, wait a second. We can't, we can't execute this, this person. Well, we have Cotton Mather who comes in. He jumps in and he's kind of like, wait a second, this people, guy. this doesn't mean anything. Like, you know, he oh wasn't really a minister. The devil can take any form, even the form of an innocent person. And so he's basically like, nothing to see here. We're just going to go forward with this because these people have to perform this mental gymnastics to justify anything. At this point, like you can't have people saying that we doubt this because you've already hung how many people and you have all these people in jail. Well, not just that, all the people in jail can just cite the Lord's Prayer and like, hey, we're all innocent. Let's just memorize some stuff. Well, actually, you would think that most would be able to do this because of how important religion was. It said a shocking number of people were not able to do this. Just they couldn't Well, probably people couldn't read or write very good either. So it's probably kind of hard to... But in the end, George Burroughs was executed. He was hung on Proctor's Ledge. And he was hung alongside George Jacobs, John Proctor, John Willard, and Martha Carrier. Elizabeth Proctor received a stay of execution because she was pregnant and thankfully never saw the gallows and ended up surviving and eventually being released. That's interesting. Were they going to wait for her to have her baby before they executed her? Yes. Okay. By the time she had the baby and it ended, she ended up getting up. These bodies were cut down. They were moved off to the side to a place called the rocks and quote buried, which means they're kind of just thrown into a shallow grave. So shallow yeah, that George Burroughs' hands, chin, and one foot were still sticking out. So oh God. 18 people were indicted in September, including Giles Corey, Martha Corey, my favorite of all of this. Giles Corey was arraigned on September 9th. Mercy Lewis said that Giles Spector had asked her to write in his book, and when she wouldn't, she was beaten. Giles, this is interesting. He refuses to enter a plea. He doesn't say either way. And this is important because the law said if you die without entering a plea, then your estate can still be passed on to your family. So oh. he's like, he's like, I'm not going to say anything. Like I'm, a loophole. I'm not going to. But they want to try and get it out of. They want you to plead. They want you to say something. So they did this thing. It's torture. It's torture. Um, I'm. I can't pronounce the. It's a French phrase. Can't pronounce it. But it translates to hard and forceful punishment. So basically, this torture. He was stripped naked. He was laid out flat in public and boards were put on top of his body. And then boulders were slowly added to the top of these boards. 
This started on September 17th for Giles, and this went on for two days. He was slowly pressed to death with these boulders for two days. And each time they would ask him to enter a plea, he would respond, more weight or more rocks. And they would put another one on. They just kept adding them on. And it was said that after two days, on September 19th at noon, after being pressed to death for two days without ever having to enter, he died and it was in possession oh, so of sad. his full estate, which then passed on to his two son-in-laws. So he was the only person executed who wasn't hung. He was pressed to death. But when you look up his information, like it says he's innocent, that he never... I mean, he never entered a plea, and no. he was never tried and, I mean, executed. It's not like he was convicted and then executed. It was they killed him trying to get a confession out of him or a plea. At least he took one for his family. He probably knew he was screwed anyway, yeah. just like everybody else was. So he's like, if I'm going to die, at least I'm going to leave my children something. Like stubborn old man. Like, I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, but I mean, that's the one time when being stubborn probably came in handy. <laughs> yeah, but could you imagine that? I mean, if you're going to die anyway. God, that'd be terrible. Pressed to death for two days. And people just think that's okay. And out in public, like people can just like sit there and watch as this is happening. His wife, Martha Corey, my my girl, her trial was also in September. Obviously, several people testified against her, several members of the Putnam family. Most of the testimony was spectral evidence and stories of Martha pinching, choking, and biting the afflicted. Again, they brought up the story of the investigation and the clothes and how she seemed to know ahead of time that they were going to ask about her clothes. That was retold. Martha was found guilty on September 8, 1692, excommunicated from the church by Samuel Paris on September 11th. On September 22nd, three days after her husband was executed, she was brought to Proctor's Ledge in a cart with seven convicted witches, including... In a cart. In a cart, um, including Mary Eastie. Mary Eastie was also Rebecca Nurse's other sister. Alice Parker, Anne Puditer. No idea. Okay. Mar- Margaret Scott, Wilmot Red, Samuel Wardwell, and Mary Parker. These eight hangings were the last ones for the Salem witch trials. September 22nd Jeez. was the last of the executions. And at this time in late September, early October, a lot more people were starting to become more critical of the accusations of the trials. I was going to ask, why did they suddenly kind of stop? People were just kind of like, this is wrong. <laughs> People started to question the afflicted girls and started to kind of think, finally, maybe the devil, again, like they're still believing in the devil and witches, but they're starting to think maybe the devil's actually deceiving us and working through these afflicted girls to accuse innocent people. Like people are really like starting to doubt because there's a ton of people in jail and they're still believing in the devil. They're just thinking like, Ooh. You're going to run out of people to accuse. Yeah, obviously. Um, a man named Thomas Brattle, he was a local merchant. He circulated a pamphlet that was very critical of the methods used during the trial. Um, increased Mather, he was Cotton Mather, that little piece of poop. It was, his, <laughs> it was his father. And he is quoted as saying, It would be better that 10 suspected witches may escape than one innocent person be condemned. Hey, so he's, he's starting to come out and be like, well, we can't use some of this evidence strictly. It's the only things that we use to convict these people. It's because of this waning public support and these two publications that William Phipps, who established the court of Oyer and Terminer, 
He dissolved the court on October 29, 1692. Also around this time, coincidentally, William Phipps's wife had been accused. So... Oh, okay. Okay. People can run on all over other people all they want until something happens to you and then you see problems with it. In the end, 20 people were executed. 14 were women. Six were men. On Janu- in January 1697, Massachusetts General Court declared a day of fasting. The trials were later said to be unlawful. And Samuel Sewell, who had been one of the ones who presided over the trials, he came out and apologized for his role in it. So people were really starting to be like, we oh, kind of got this better. wrong. Like, we think we, like, the devil misled us and we might have got this wrong. Okay. We just killed a lot of people. Sorry. In 1706, Anne Putnam Jr. issued an apology, specifically naming Rebecca Nurse and her two sisters, Mary and Sarah. She didn't come out and say she lied, but instead said she'd been deceived by the devil, never meaning anger or harm on anybody. She was the only one of the accusers to apologize. So she doesn't come out and say, I'm not lying. But it's like, did you lie? Or did you really think that you were going through this? Like, again, like no, their their belief, well, obviously she did lie. But did she know she lied? Or was she like, the devil made me do this? Like, she never apologized saying, like, I lied. She just said, like, the devil deceived me. And I got you it You know, going wrong. back to what you said about the gaslighting thing. If one girl decides to, well, like, one girl can just decide to lie. And, like, start having these fits and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And if you've heard of that phenomenon, it's some kind of psychological thing. Well, like if one person is in a crowd and they start getting, it's like they get people fired up and unruly or something. Like if one person gets fired up about something, they'll get somebody else fired up about it too. And before you know it, you have this whole big mob that was once like just peaceful and chilling. And now they're all fired up, ready to burn the world down. Yeah, it's mob mentality. And then like it can catch on to others and then they can, maybe she did think that she was like being taken over by the devil. Well, at the end, we'll talk about some theories. In 1711, legislation was passed that restored the good name of the condemned and helped the families receive restitution for what their families went through. In 1957, more than 250 years later, Massachusetts finally apologized for the trials and said, we're sorry. In August 1992, which it marked the 300th anniversary, the Salem Witch Trials Memorial was opened. The memorial has 20 granite benches that are coming out of a stone wall. Each bench has the name and date of execution of those that died. Because those executed, because they didn't have Christian burials, the location of the remains are unknown for everybody. I mean, honestly, they're probably scattered by animals by now. So Salem would definitely play a role in how our court system procedures evolved, leading to the legal right to representation, the right to cross-examination, and the presumption of innocence over guilt, which none of these people got. Not a lot is known about the accusers and what happened to them, except a handful. Anne Putnam Jr., um, her parents died in 1699, and she ended up having to raise her nine siblings. She never married. She suffered from chronic illness, and she ended up dying at 37. Ironically enough, she probably would have been accused of being a witch because she was a single woman and she was ill. And At that point, yeah. She's different. She's different, exactly. She became the one thing that she accused. Mary Walcott ended up marrying and having eight children. She died at 77. Abigail Williams, who was one of the original accusers, 
Um, she ran away from Salem after the trials. No one knows what happened to her, but it said that she ran away to the city and resorted to prostitution, dying at 17 years old. That's kind of what huh. has been rumored. She didn't have a good life. Betty Paris, who was the daughter of Samuel Paris, went on to lead a normal life, married, having four children. She died at 78. And do you remember um, the man I mentioned, John Hale? Yes. He came in the beginning. His wife, Sarah, was accused. That's my ancestor. Oh, is it? Yes. That's I knew him. you had one. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wow. Him. Yeah. So I had to, like, he's not, he's mentioned as being somebody that he, at the end, like, he came out and was like, no, this, no, like, we've made a big mistake. Again, one of the ones who probably did it because his wife was accused. But, um, yeah, so my great-grandma is Nancy Jane Hale. So yeah. she's a Hale. And then when my aunt's um, friend who does genealogy research, who he's since passed away, I was so disappointed because I wanted to actually call and talk to him about it. When he did our ancestry research, he found that we were related to John Hale. Sarah Hale was his wife. So what happened to them? She ended up actually dying a few years later. But then oh, John gosh. Hale went on to write. I mean, he was pretty much vocal about the mistakes that were made afterwards. And yeah, like, but I'm like, in the beginning, you were very much all for this. And so, yeah, but he was one of the ones that come forward and be like, yeah, we got this wrong. We kind of made a mistake. So too little, too late. Too li- Exactly. All right. So we're going to talk about what the heck happened. <laughs> There's a lot of theories. There's the ergot theory. Ergot is a mold that ends up in rye which would have been baked into rye bread or witch cake or witch cake, but it causes symptoms like nervous system changes, vomiting, hallucinations, delusions, sensations on your skin. Like if you ingest this, it has similar chemical properties to LSD. Sweet. So that's a big theory I mean, that came out in the seventies in the seventies. Okay. That exactly makes sense now. <laughs> in the seventies drug culture. Okay. Um, yeah. I've seen this discredited a lot. Wouldn't everybody have it? Because if everybody right. was eating this rye bread that's made right. from it, I feel like everybody, a lot more people than just the group of mean girls would be afflicted. Exactly. So exactly. Be. And they could turn off their symptoms on and off. So it's not like, and they didn't have long-term effects. Of this. So that's been discredited, but that was like a medical type of ex- explanation for it. Um, there's some also that say that Samuel Paris, the minister at the time, he really like took advantage of the accusations and used it as a tool of you know, advancing himself politically and in the community. And that people came out years later after all this and actually wanted to charge him because they were like, you could have stopped this and you didn't. And you stood up on your pulpit and you all you did was preach witchcraft and you just like riled up the whole entire community for this. He got them all whipped up into hysteria. You soak these fears. There was the rumor that he had beat Tichba to confess, that he had used her and told her what to say so he could kind of like stoke those fears. It'd be the same as inciting a riot today. Exactly. So that's kind of a theory which I can kind of go with. And then kind of the biggest theory is just, which isn't, it's a theory, but at the same time, it just doesn't really give concrete explanations, but it's just basically like mass hysteria. Yeah, mass hysteria was the cause. So basically, you have, you know, everything they're experiencing at the time. You have wars, refugees, disease outbreaks, attacked by attacks by indigenous people, 
fear of these indigenous people because they're different, uncertainty about the future, lost charters, and then this like extreme belief of supernatural and the devil and the presence of all this evil everywhere. And it leads to this hysteria and pointing the finger at everyone because you're terrified and you don't know what's going on and almost like distorts how you're seeing everything. You have all these things that are going wrong. It's easier to point the finger at somebody and say, it's their fault. They're a witch than to actually like blame yourself or try and figure out the problem of what's happening. Right. So you have people experiencing high levels of anxiety, excessive fear on a day-to-day basis, which is messing with your mental state. And it's not like people could go to therapy at the time. It's not like you could be like, I need to get this in check. Like, let me go schedule an appointment with therapy. Oh, therapy is witchcraft. You can't have feelings. <laughs> right. You, there's no way to deal with your mental health. PTSD is another thing. Several of the afflicted girls had actually witnessed their families killed during Indian raids. Mercy Short had been somebody who was an accuser. She had been taken captive by an Indian tribe and witnessed dismemberment of other captives as a way of like teaching a lesson of like, if you don't do what I tell you, you're going to go through this. So she witnessed some pretty awful things. And then Mercy Lewis had been orphaned when her family was killed in Indian raids, which she witnessed. She witnessed the death of her family. Like, I don't want to have any sympathy for the mean girls, but I mean, yeah, I'm trying to keep an open mind too. You've experienced really bad trauma and you don't have a way to deal with it. Seeing my family murdered in front of me would probably do me in. Right. But these days you would be able to get the help that you needed. But here they did. They just moved these girls into different houses and they usually became servants of other families. You can't be sad. You can't be angry. Right. You're living in this rigid world. And if you are experiencing these, you know, PTSD and anxiety and you start having fits, you start yelling at people, you have nightmares, like what was seen as being afflicted could just be like this fallout from them experiencing these awful traumas in their life. And also becoming an accuser, you suddenly have the power that you didn't have before. Well, not only that, but now you probably have sympathy from people and people are actually catering to you and like helping you and, you know, you poor girl, like, what can I do to help you? Well, and that kind of goes into my next point about gender, about these afflicted girls suddenly had power that they had never had before. And they have the attention they've never had before. They're not seen as sick. They're seen as powerful and, you know, integral and fighting against the devil. So when you're raised to be submissive and respect adults and ask for forgiveness, you don't have toys, you don't have games, and you don't have the same education that boys have, all of a sudden it's like, holy crap, I have this control and I can literally point my finger at somebody and everyone's going to pay attention to me. So obviously like that power has got to be addicting for them. And then once they have it, it's not like they can turn around and be like, I lied because (laughs) then they could be like, well, you're a witch. You've been working as a witch to kill all these innocent people. So, I mean, and I think that's why they listened, you know, A big question I heard during that history podcast was someone was like, why were these girls listened to in the society that has such a rigid hierarchy where girls are at the bottom? Why were these girls listened to? And they made a point. They're like, because they were saying what people wanted to hear. These people saw this attack by the devil as like a badge of honor, as something good. You know, if the devil is after us, that reinforces that we are the chosen people. 
that we're doing right by God if the devil's attacking us. The devil would be trying to turn us if we weren't such good people in God's eyes. Right. They almost wanted to listen to these girls. It just reaffirms their religious beliefs that they already held. Exactly. That's all I have on the Salem Witch Trials. What do you think? I'm exhausted. I'm sorry. I mean that in a good way. No, I mean that in a good way. But it's just, again, and I keep trying to think, this is a different time. People had different Isn't that hard to like keep your mind in that time? You can't possibly take somebody to court with no evidence. Like, can you not use your common sense and see this? But they didn't do that. And it's really hard Mm. to wrap your brain around it. It is. But just look at some of the things that are going on now in our society. Okay, yeah, this happened 300 years ago, but- it didn't happen in a vacuum. There were reasons that this happened right. and it could happen to, it does happen today. It is happening today. The crucible was written in the fifties yeah. by Arthur Miller. That's an, like an allegory. And I hope that's the right word that I'm using. That's about McCarthyism. So, but they use the Salem witch trials as a way, as a commentary on McCarthyism and that yeah. fear of like that, the witch hunt fear that happened during McCarthyism. So it's like, it's happening now. It's happening these days. But you know, too, when you talk about how you had the afflicted slash mean girls and everybody believed them, all you had to do is point a finger at somebody and they say, oh, you're a witch. We're bringing you in. And today you have with like the Me Too movement and all that women that are come forward with stories of sexual harassment and assault and nobody believes them. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah suddenly we don't believe people now like because it's not convenient for us exactly like we don't want to believe that convenience is a very good word for the Salem witch trials because I feel like a lot of it went the way it went because it was convenient for the people in charge who were men Mm -hmm. mainly I mean yes they're men men. convicted but they were these are people of the upper echelons of their communities and you know they're giving sentences and killing primarily women who aren't allowed to defend themselves. They don't have the level of education that men have and they have no way of defending themselves. And what do these judges do if somebody is on trial for witchcraft and they say not guilty and let them go? Well, look at Rebecca Nurse. It's like, go back and say it again. Go back and try it again. Yeah. There's only one possible answer that they'll accept. Yeah. No, there is. And you have to talk about the fear of women too. Like women... I mean, still to this day, women have, you know, we're expected to act in a certain way. Are we being hanged for witchcraft? No. I just want to not be groped on public transportation. <laughs> I'm going to be, express my opinion and not be told right. I'm, I'm being crazy. I don't want people to stop telling me to smile when I look like I'm having no. a bad day. <laughs> my mom did not teach me to sit still and keep my mouth shut. Believe me. It's like Leanna Mormont in Game of Thrones before the Battle of Winterfell. She's like, I don't plan on sitting and knitting by the fire. Very different back then. That's how I struggled trying to research this when I my head was about to explode. And I'm like, <laughs> you are living in the 21st century. Get your head out of the 21st century and think about the 1600s. Man, I couldn't imagine living back then. It would drive me crazy. But I can't think of it, it and take away everything of my own experiences. Because it wouldn't drive you crazy then. It's just... It's how it was. That's all I would know. Yes. So, yeah, that's the end of Salem Witch Trials. How long was that? Two hours, 24 minutes. Um, pre-edit. Oh, my God. Thank you that all good, for though. staying with us. No, it was important for me to get, like, to get it right. 
it's just book well, one because I've always loved this time in history and studying it. And there's right. so much information out there. I, like everything I added was stuff I felt like was important to talk about. And your ancestor. That's pretty cool, too. I hope I got everything factually right. I really hope I did. If I didn't. You only had a thousand sources. I only had so many sources. Jeez. If anyone has any stories about Salem, we'd love to hear them. Or Halloween in general. Or Halloween. Oh, yeah. Halloween. Please send us your Halloween stories. Yeah, if you have any ghost stories. Halloween memories in general, because we love Halloween. Send us your favorite Halloween movie. If you have a favorite Halloween candy. Or scary movie in general. Or what was your favorite Halloween costume growing up? Because we want to talk about all of this on our special Halloween episode we've released. Um, send us your stories, Darker Side of Life Podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Darker Side of Life Podcast. Find us on Twitter at, at DSOL Podcast. Oh, by the way, in my Alcatraz episode, I mentioned something about sirens from the island during one of the escape attempts being heard from Golden Gate Park. Golden Gate Park is not the park that's at the base of the Golden Gate Bridge. Golden Gate Park is a little south of there, and it's a long, like, linear park that runs through, like, more of the city part, like the town part. It's not connected to Golden Gate Bridge and not connected to San Francisco Bay in any way. So my geography was kind of wrong, but oh well. Alrighty. Alrighty. So thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye. Goodbye. I'm so freaking exhausted right now.